Well, I've now got just a few minutes to speak. You're very excited, I'm sure, to, to hear that. Um, but do you know what? I want to say this. Today we had a word from my wife, the Lord through my wife, about waking up. And um, I, I, I noticed that line, you know, the line that your love awakens me. And I, and I wanted to jump up and I'm always doing stuff. So I, thought, I won't, I won't, I control myself. And, and, uh, and the Lord spoke through her. And I do feel that if I'm honest, even the fact that we've just had an alarm, this just is my interpretation in the moment, is the Lord trying to wake us up? Because we can be so sleepy, and I feel that there is a now word for the church of this nation, not just for City Church, that we need to wake the heck up, to be blunt. Really wake up. I had the privilege this week uh, of being with five men, apostles in their 30s, from different nations, and I will never be the same again. Because one of the guys, for example, is in one of the most terrifying Middle Eastern countries you could ever imagine. He's from a very Western country. He was earning hundreds of thousands of pounds in his early 20s. He had a million-pound house. And the Lord sovereignly spoke to him 10 years ago and said, I want you to give your life and move to this nation. And I can't say any more details or else I could give away his identity. And I want you to, give your, I want you to go and to start preaching the gospel in this incredibly terrifying country. Ten years on, thousands and thousands of Muslims are coming to faith through this guy. And I said to him, and, and he was full of the joy, knowing that at any moment he could die for his faith. And I said to him, is, is your wife, who's originally from that country, and the Lord spoke to him, and he said, I want you to marry her, and he couldn't even speak her language because she's from this Middle Eastern country, and he, he's from a Western country. And he, he, he was like, what, Lord, you're crazy. I can't do this. And the Lord's like, no, no, you, you need to marry her, because I've got a mission for you. So I said to them, that's amazing. How many kids have you got? I said, oh, no, we haven't got any kids. We can't have kids, because they would be used to, talk, to be tortured and to get facts out of us about the underground church. And he said that in the first five minutes of being together, and I immediately thought, even if I've come all this way to have five minutes with this man, and to hear him make one throwaway comment, oh, no, we haven't got kids. We'll never have kids. Because we know God said that we, we need to be ready to die for our faith. He's 32. And he's, he's, not, he's not, don't think of some kind of, you know, we can often think of him someone like you. Just the most, can I put this normal Western guy that you're used to dealing with, full of fear. He was a tech genius, uh, earning huge amounts and out of, out of nowhere. And I said to him, what do you think about this country? What do, what's your message? And he just said, there's an invasion happening. And the church has to wake up. You need to wake up. You need to wake up to the reality that we are living in the end times. Can you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25? I'm going to do my best. I, 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 I can't remember the last time I had so many notes scribbled on bits of paper in my study. I haven't got any of them here, of course. But I've been living with what seems a strange passage, the parable of the ten virgins. But I want to say this with all my heart, all of Scripture is God-breathed. Say all. all. All of it. When you find yourself in a passage that at first you think, this seems weird, I want to appeal to you to ask the Holy Spirit to not let you move on until you see something in it. Because, you know, there is infinite depth in every single part of this book. Infinite depth. And in this apparently strange story, we see a, at one level, very simple principle to a, to a church that is getting sleepy. And at one level, it is the most incredibly profound and urgent thing that we can so easily overlook. The context 
of this passage of Matthew 25, verses 1 to 10, I think it is, is so key you get this. Now, you might not know this passage, you might not be a Christian, and that's fine. Hopefully, you'll get something from today as we look at this. The, pa- the, the context is a lot of red from Matthew 23, 24, 25. This is Jesus. The, this is him sitting down with his disciples, and it may be well there's others listening in, but these are his final words. He's just in Matthew 23, been massively critical of the leaders of that spiritual nation. Massively critical. At the end of 23, there's this like awkward moment, I would imagine, and you see at 24, the disciples, I think they're almost trying to lighten the atmosphere, they, they point out the buildings in Jerusalem. <laughs> they oh, thanks Jesus for that. And they point out the temple and the, the beauty of the temple. And then Jesus, classic Jesus, he then says, says, truly, this is 24 verse 1, uh, sorry, yeah, verse uh, 2, he says, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He prophesies what then happened a few years later, which was the falling of Jerusalem. And historically, it was one of the most devastatingly brutal things that ever happened in the history of the world. The, the falling of that nation, the, dump, the, the coming down of the physical temple. And then what Jesus does from 24 and 25, he starts talking about the end of the world. He starts talking about the end of the world. Yes, he is absolutely speaking about the end of Jerusalem. And the two are kind of intertwined. One moment he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which we know happened in AD 70. But the next moment he's also speaking and prophesying to you here right today in East Kent. Relevant stuff. What should we expect in these last days? What should we expect, O church, as we endeavor to follow Christ? You will be told a lie, even amongst Christian circles, that if you follow Christ, your life will go swell, sister, and that people will flock to you and they will love you. That ain't what Jesus said. He doesn't say that. And if your expectations are wrong, you you can even deny Christ because Ultimately, you're expecting things to be a nice sugary way. And when your life is actually really hard, if you're not awake to that reality, you can miss, you can miss what Christ has got for you. So he repeatedly says, you've just got to read it in your own time. He says, first, for example, chapter 24, he says, then they'll deliver you to death. Oh, can you imagine Jesus saying that to you. He's looking you in the eye saying, you're going to die for your faith. If you follow me, it means you'll die. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. You'll be put to death. You're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And look at this. And this gospel, this gospel, the true gospel, the gospel where Some people respond and you're the fragrance of Christ and they love you and they go, this is the greatest news ever that Jesus is real. And in the same time, in the same room, with the same bunch of people, there are people who go, I actually feel like I want to kill you right now. That's what he speaks about. It's always been the way. And you do not hear this, do we? We don't hear this. To my my shame at times, I don't preach this because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be a kind of bearer of woe. But I love you. I love you as my family. And actually, when I talked to Daisy and Lily and Poppy, when I, this week over breakfast, said, I'm going to spend some time with these mighty men. One of them is from a country where he will very lightly at some point lose his life. They are desperately, ISIS and the Islamic fundamentalists are desperately trying to track this guy down all the time. And I said, this guy, because he follows Jesus, him and his wife will probably die for their faith. 
And Daisy and Lily and Poppy, even the fact that I was going to spend some time with him, they looked very nervous. And they need to feel the reality of that, but in the same breath, no, but listen, Jesus is in control. Jesus is bigger. And if you put your hope in this life only, oh my word, you will cling to this life. You'll try and save your life. And actually, you'll then get to eternity and you realize, I've completely missed it. I had a massive heated discussion with a very good friend of mine. Actually, it was about Donald Trump, to be honest with you. But anyway, not to get political as well. What the heck? And uh, we were just talking about this. And, and in the end, and he was saying, I want to protect my family and I want to protect them. And I said, I get that. I'm protective. But the reality is I can't protect them from dying. They are going to die one day. I want them to have long, fruitful lives, but they're going to die. They are going to die. And therefore, I, the best thing I can do, even more than praying for protection, although I pray that, amen, I pray that their souls will be filled with the oil of God. From as young as God would ordain it. Right today, I want them filled with the oil of God. Because then they can approach death, not as an enemy, not as this thing to be avoided, I'm clinging to this life. But actually, I am ready. I'm as ready as I can be. That's actually the gospel. He says, this gospel will be proclaimed. It's kind of scary and it's kind of wonderful. It's a weird mix, amen? It's kind of both. So this is the context. You've got to get the context. Read 23, 24, 25. Can I encourage you to read it slowly? I've been reading these three chapters for about two or three months because I'm a slow, I'm slow processor. And the reason it's vital is because when you feel the weight of what Jesus is saying to his church, to his, to his flock... He's not punching the air going, well, I'm going to be gone, but man, you're going to fly. You're going to fly, son. He's actually saying, get ready for, for actual death and people to hate you and your life to be really hard. The one thing you get is me. The one thing you get is Jesus. You may get a blessed life in other ways, but the one guaranteed promise of the gospel is you get Christ. You will get Christ, but nothing else is guaranteed. He's saying that to them, and this is what he says. And in that context of massive, weighty, oh, how do we as Christians, how do we actually live practically knowing that Jesus in these chapters sets us up to think about the end of the world, how people are going to respond? He suddenly brings this curious story to them. You think, why is Jesus suddenly talking about? Think about it, these are like burly men, right? Huh. And listen to Jesus talking about going to battle and to die. And then he starts talking about virgins. Ten virgins. I love that about Jesus. If you don't know Jesus here today, he's not what you think. He's so amazing. He's fascinating. And this is what he says. Verse 1, 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps. And they went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, this is the key verse, guys, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy. Oh, sounds familiar. They all became drowsy. Oh. And they slept. Fascinating, all of them. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here... Here is the bridegroom. Come out, church, to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Oh, give us, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterwards, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is an extraordinary story, and I can just bring out a tiny bit of it in the time we have. But this vivid story has at one level a very simple, very simple and very challenging message to it. In the context of all that he's been saying about pressure and difficulties, notice what he zooms in on. This issue of oil. Now you tell me, what in the Bible is oil so often referred to? It's a metaphor for something, isn't it? Say it. The Holy Spirit. The presence of God. The oil. Oil is synonymous with healing and wisdom and joy and guidance. The oil of strength. This beautiful central idea. Now don't miss this. In the context of apocalyptic writing, the heaviest writing you can see in the Bibles, he's talking about, about evil men rising up, wars, famines, rumors of wars. This is the world we're living in right now. Do you feel it? I feel it, and I watch the news, and I'm like, what is going on on planet Earth? All the time, you can't keep up with it. Massacre here, massacre here, child abuse here. And it's just, it's just this weight of horror that's happening. And what does he talk about when Jesus says, that's going to happen? And then he says, so, oh, Christian, how do you survive so you're not crushed by it? Because you feel the weight of it, right? Knowing this information as a human is, is kind of helpful and kind of crushing at the same time. And I love what he says. He just breaks this right down into this central idea of your oil of your lamp. Now, one level in this picture, it says all these bridegrooms, this picture of in, in Middle Eastern culture, they went out apparently to, to, to make ready for when the bridegroom would come. They would be ready, waiting. And often these marriages went right on into the night, so you needed your lamps to be ready. And the central idea here is this contrast between those who have flasks of oil and those who have none. See, what's so scary about this is, if you looked at these two groups of people, the five wise and the five foolish, at one level, when you first glanced at them, they look exactly the same. They look exactly the same. They both had lamps, right? They're both burning instinctively. And this is a picture of planet Earth. This is a picture of every person. The Bible says all people have who live are kind of like this. You look at them, you don't know what's going on in their hearts. It's impossible to know. We're all kind of like the bride, we're all kind of like the virgins, and we're kind of like the lamps as well. Our lives are burning away. The blessings of children and clothes and food. There they are, there's life. The blessings of looking at a sunset and just music and joy and the normal blessings. But the key thing he's saying here to his disciples and to us and to anyone who would listen is that there is, it's not just a, a slight difference. He says you are either eternally foolish or eternally wise if in the context of these weighty matters, if you take flasks of oil. Now what's he talking about? He's talking here about the need to massively in every area of your life, whether you're here in the Langton for a brief moment each week, whether you're out with your kids during the week, whether you're a, a teacher, whether you're 
in, in education, whether you're a senior citizen, wherever you are, if you say, I think I know Jesus, he's saying you have to be someone. When you're living in these days, more than relying on your own talents or own strategies or your plans or even on your own friends or your church community, although that's good, you have to take responsibility for your own levels of oil. You have to. And, and as charismatics, that's a name that we often give for our type of Christianity. We're happy, we're clappy. And we talk about the oil of the Holy Spirit. And we often rightly talk about it in terms of just kind of like it's a privilege, it's a joy. And we get to know God like Jesus knew God through the Spirit. And that's so true. And we've got to remember that. There's this joy, privilege thing. But what I'm trying to get at us here, there's this, there's this also, as it were, this urgent element It's not just a thing that every so often you come to an event. Next Sunday, providentially, Terry Virgo's coming. Hooray! He's going to be speaking on something called baptism in the Spirit, which is a profoundly key thing. And we're built as a movement, actually, on this wonderful truth, which is every Christian needs to have a power encounter with God again and again. And it's true, and it's glorious, and it leads to Sunday meetings which are vibrant and are life-changing. But what I want us to underline and see here is in the context where Jesus, with his final words, is appealing to them as a priority. He's, he's not really talking about Sunday meetings primarily. He's saying, in view of this world and what's happening in this world, oh church, if you focus on the wrong things, if you, oh Christian, subtly let your lamp go out, you won't actually be ready for him. It's interesting, isn't it, that both those, both those who are wise and foolish ultimately are still prone to going to sleep. You notice that? I love that little touch. Because <clears throat> what he's saying is, it's knowing flasks of oil. As a Christian, living ongoingly, saying, Lord, I need your filling every hour, every day, all the time. But it's, it's this, the feel of it is, is actually, it's not just enough just to kind of, as it were, have this Holy Spirit in a kind of like, can I say this, indulgent way? Because that can happen, can't it? Yeah? We're all selfish. And we can go, oh, great, Holy Spirit makes me feel good. And unconsciously what happens is, we, the Spirit actually can make us almost soporific. You know that word? It's a great word, soporific. You can actually almost, that you can easily slip into a kind of me-centered Holy Spirit dimension. And that's not the feel here, because actually those even who, the five uh, who were wise, who had flasks of oil, still got sleepy. Do you see? Because what he's saying is it needs to be that you in your life are drinking from the Holy Spirit, but you are coupling that with a watchfulness, with an alertness. You can be someone who gets into just enjoying the presence of God and actually don't even think about those who don't know Christ. You can live from meeting to meeting and actually get into this kind of vertical me and God thing and think, wait a minute, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll love your neighbor. So there's this, there's this, there's this Holy Spirit element here, this flasks of oil. How are we doing on this? But right alongside it is not just a cozy thing. It's this wonderful blend of watchfulness. The Spirit is meant to lead us as a people into being watchful. I've just been so struck recently that the entire of the Christian life, from start to finish, cannot be lived without flasks of oil. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From start to finish, you can't become a Christian. Not a real Christian. 
You can become a cultural Christian. That's available without the flasks of oil. And there's lots of those in the UK. I can't remember the census stats, but, you know, are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah. High percentage. Are you a Christian when it means you're going to actually then face hardship and difficulties? And Maybe not. Time out on that one. Had the way we start truly as a believer is actually by encountering the Holy Spirit properly, deeply, truly. You know that verse we looked at a few weeks ago, Galatians 5, 25 or 24, where it says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Do you remember that? Do you remember the picture? We said, this is Paul talking to a, a, a bunch of Christians and he's saying to them, you now belong to Christ, you're a Christian, but what does that mean? It means now you are crucifying, you did it at the beginning and you do it every day, you are aggressively, rightfully, doing your best by the power of the Spirit to actually hold those parts of you, those fleshly parts of you that we all have, the selfishness, the greed, the, the inappropriate anger, the lust of the flesh, you're crucifying that. You're holding it. You know, crucifixion was reserved for the worst offenders. You, didn't do, you, did to be, you did it to be brutal if you killed someone that way. And he's saying, when you became a Christian, you belonged to Christ, you now started to crucify the flesh. Now, that is a vivid image. Do our kids, as they're learning about what it is to follow Christ, are we equipping them to say, well, one way of understanding it is what happens is God so fills your heart that you start to hate the sinful part of your life in a way that you didn't before, so that you almost want to pin it to a cross. That's hardcore, right? You look shocked, I can tell. But I don't know what the, the, you know, the kids' work was like in Galatia. But Paul's using this metaphor. Do you understand? What I'm trying to get us to wake up to is that to be a Christian, it doesn't mean this kind of like, you know, fair weather deal. It is. Even to start to be a Christian, if you're looking into Christianity here, what it means is, Paul says, you need, to, you need to ask God to give you his perspective on your sin so you hate it. Do you understand? I mean, it's, you know, the fear of the Lord is so gone. You know, right at the heart of the Lord's prayer, it says, hallowed be your name. So to start to become a Christ follower, it doesn't mean it's a tweak. It means that you were spiritually dead and you have been raised to life. It's a radical thing. And that can only happen by an encounter with the Holy Spirit. So we partner with him. We speak about things. We do any course we can. But what I'm trying to say is they are vehicles, just vehicles. And our expectation, though, church, must be for the power of the risen Christ to flood that room. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You've got to wake up. Do you see, there's a feel to what I'm saying here. It's not enough to go, oh, that's interesting. There is an actual atmosphere of this, of this scripture that you have to get into your skin. You have to get in. This is so urgent. I know so many men I love now who, 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 who I talk with and I chat with and I just know unless God invades their hearts, they're never going to bow the knee to Jesus. I can't do it. And I know we know that, but it's, it's, it's sobering. It's sobering. When Martin Lloyd-Jones, an amazing guy from the past who led a mighty church, right near the end of his life in the 80s, he was interviewed and they said, so what would your final words be to the church of this nation? Steadily serious, he said, do not stop preaching a gospel which says to this world, flee for the coming wrath of God. 
And he said, in our efforts to be PC and in our efforts to be uh, not seen as fire and brimstone, many churches have slipped away from the, the true gospel, which actually, of course, it's about encountering a loving father. I get that. I love that. I love the warm, cuddly stuff. I'm for that. But the reality is, as well as the carrot, there is the reality of the stick, as it were. There's the kindness that leads to repentance. There's, there's a sense of us needing to be a people who, this isn't just, this isn't something we can do. You can't just, you know, if we, if we just do the right things, we can help. It's got to be God. It's got to be God who births people. And, and, and I just feel more and more in my life, I mean, I was in the pub recently with some guys, you know, I've mentioned this a lot. And, and the big thing at the moment is 2016, the year of death. Because so many celebrities are dying. And actually, this can I be honest? This is a good thing. Not that they're dying, but it's a good thing that they're becoming aware of their need to think about death. I praise God for that. I praise God for social media. And what's happened is more people have become celebrities than ever. There's so many. And so they're going to die. And everyone's going to hear about it. And everyone's talking about it. And I'm thinking, praise God, they're talking about death. Hallelujah. Because we have an answer. Amen. We are, amen. It's, it's real. It's so real. And so with joy, we can say in the same breath, it is awful and it is shocking. But as Christians, we do believe that a man came back from the dead. I walked through the night with one of my neighbors that same night. The rain was coming down. It was very dramatic. With a couple of years, I was walking through and I gave him a testimony last week. And he was like, oh, that's great for you. And I said, it's not just great for me, mate. It's not. I said, I love my life. It's all very nice and comfy and everything. But the reality is that Jesus, Jesus said he was going to come back from the dead. He said that death is, is, is an enemy that's not meant to be on planet Earth. And actually, I'm going to offer a way by you can live forever with him. And I found myself saying this. I thought, I know this sounds crazy, but there was a boldness. And he went quiet. And she said, I've never really heard it like that. And, and I, I guess I'm just saying it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen in me and in him. And I found myself on my knees more than ever saying, God, God, you just have to move. Again, this week with this guy who's seeing incredible things happening in the in Islamic world, I said to him, Tell, talk me through what you actually do. How do you do it? And he, and he said, well, I just talk about God. And I say, how's Allah doing for you? Is he blessing you? And they're like, hmm. And, and, and he's, a, he's a bit cheeky. He said, well, you ask Allah even more. Pray a bit more. And like, okay, try a bit harder. He's like, and what he's doing is the spirit giving wisdom. <laughs> he's getting to the point where they're really, really asking. Really? And, and not, it's not happening. And then I said to him, So how do you get to the point where you bring the gospel? And he says, Well, you never mention Jesus. You can't mention Jesus. If you say, Well, Jesus, you're rumbled. They know you're a Christian. So, so, so how do they become Christians then? And he said, The power of God. This is the guy in his early 30s, a Western bloke who's now in a, in a very scary nation, seeing thousands of Muslims come to faith. And I thought, what do you mean? He said, through dreams, visions, just the Holy Spirit invading their hearts. Hallelujah. So at one level, I'm in awe of this guy, thinking, how is he doing this? And I felt God saying, he's not doing it, you Wally. I'm doing it, Tom. I've always done it. I'll always do it. You're just a little ant. And I love you dearly. I was like, oh, yeah. Hallelujah. And I just, so when we talk about this thing of mission and this thing that's gripped us as a, as a church more than ever, it's not some little additional thing. It's the heart of God. In many ways, it's why you're still alive. <laughs> he, you know, because he's got good works for us to do. Hallelujah. 
good works prepared in advance. And I just felt like, wow, we don't have to wait until the persecution comes, and it will come. It really will come. It's creeping in all the time. I was in uh, Pilgrim's Hospice this week. Just, just a little tiny little thing. And Louise said, oh, yeah, they've got rid of the chapel. It's, like, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone now. There's still a space, and you can, you can write down prayers, but it's not a chapel. I thought, that's just interesting. It's just everywhere, little things. Schools that were Church of England, forced to become academies, and then, boom, they lose any status overnight to actually still have a Christian ethos. Just little small, small things, right? Small things. They are all adding up. <laughs> They're adding up. So, can I say... As you feel the reality of the atmosphere changing, and you feel that sense of, how do we, what do we do? What we do is, we say, Lord, we need your presence more than ever. We need your presence. We need your presence. We need your presence in people who don't know Jesus. We need your presence to keep going. It's ten past. Ah, I've got to stop. I could go for hours. I've got to, I've got to, we've got kids. I've got to honor the kids' workers. Let's stand to our feet. Sorry, I want to honor them. Leave you on the edge of your seat. This is what we're going to do, all right, church? Um, we're going to pray for each other, okay? We've got three minutes before we're going to bring this to an end. I've only got my first point, but I think you understand what I'm saying. It is an appeal of God, I believe, for us to be ready. We are a family and we are also an army. I'll say that again. We are a family and we are an army. Amen? An army that fights with love and forgiveness. How are we...